Is that what I'm saying? Rough Trade Radio. 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 Hello and welcome to this episode of Shoplifting. My name's Liv Siddle and I'm joined today by a guest I've been very excited uh, to come here, Danny Fields. Hi, Danny. Hi, Liv, and I am so excited to be here. Uh, it's been a while since I've been in this place, but it was a memorable while when it happened many times. And so, hi. Well, I'm really, really, really glad you're here. I don't, I, I think um, I was, didn't even know you were coming in until Nina said you were signing the books. And I saw the film about you when I was in New York in the October. The book is called, we like to say titles when, <laughs> <laughs> when we say that because there's a, uh, there's a large stack of them here. And I'm so proud of that because it's photographs. It is. Yeah, the book is My Ramones by Danny Fields, a beautiful hardback black book full of over 200 photographs of the Ramones that you took. Yeah. Uh, yes. Called from thousands and from my years working with them from the beginning until five years after the beginning. So um, it's following them around London, New York, California, Texas, and backstage and in the hospital and at um, at the bottom line. And there's Andy Warhol, who, there's Debbie Harry of Blondie, and uh, lots of pictures. And I'm in Washington, D.C., an ominous sign. And Los Angeles, there's Phil Spector and Joey Ramone meeting for the first time and the last, I think. No, not at all. I love this one. Last, everyone loves that. That picture of Johnny Ramon in the back of a car in West Hollywood is the picture of him that his widow, uh, Linda Ramon, keeps in, in the house hanging prominently. And he's convinced, she's convinced he's watching her uh, to see if she... Um, behaves properly and does everything right <laughs> as he would have it at his as he would have insisted that everyone do but isn't look at him looking at that look that look that look reduced grown men to jellyfish it's just and, amazing yes he just looks kind of it's a mixture of so many things like he's scared and he's kind of mean but also he's so innocent and kind of nervous it's just yeah I, I love he, it. and he's kind of in charge yeah as well don't That's you forget thing, yeah. it. All those, <laughs> all those other. Um, there's Tommy. I this, yes. That's just on and on a hillside outside of San Francisco during a, an off afternoon, which is when most of these pictures were taken. And that picture of Tommy walking along the Golden Gate, uh, to accompany it. I used I included that use Seymour Stein's condolence letter to John to Tommy's widow which is very beautiful wow. and um and and very touching as is the picture as was Tommy's passing which they're all gone I know they're all gone but I think for like th what makes this book so special is your captions and what you put next to it and the stories and the way you tell those stories and that kind of Thank you Funny for saying you that. Have. I was kind of hoping you would. There, yeah. there are words in here, and I thought, since I was there, since I did take the pictures, and since it is uh, 
evocative of a unique time in all our lives, certainly mine, that I had to say something about it. You can't just show a picture. No. You've got to do something with it because there are four guys. How many pictures can you show of four guys? Look at this in a pickup truck in Texas. <laughs> I mean, and, and with their fans, which who meant more to them than anything. So I kind of like those signing T-shirts and uh, just being there, being there for people. You say there's only so many times you can see the same four guys photograph, but I think the Ramones is a band that I would never get bored of looking at photographs of because they just, every photo is just so great and every every face they pull and everything they're wearing and everything they're doing is so cute. And also and- it's worth saying that this isn't just you drunkenly taking photos of, you know, we're using a shitty camera or whatever. It's just like the photos are, are amazing and the composition and the quality and what you take photos of is just mind-blowing. Like I don't, I guess at the time you were just an amateur photographer, but this is kind of stuff that, you know, each photo in here could be in a huge frame in a gallery. It's such good quality portraiture. I think it's oh, incredible. Oh, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And, and, and I'm so pleased with this book because uh, published by First Third Books, which is a small custom printing company, limited edition, and I came here today and I signed a bunch of them. So that was wonderful because I love that. That's more than, I don't write music, I don't play music, I don't sing, I don't tap, I don't produce, I don't spin I just am there. And and as I said at the beginning of the book, there's nothing for a manager to do. <laughs> Once you get there, everything is supposed to have been done yeah. or else you're a lousy manager. So you want to get there and see everything in order. And with nothing to do, I just pulled out a camera and took pictures of recording their first album, for example, in 1975, which was fantastic. And then when they came to London in 1976 and, and three days in London, and it is, it is said to have caused some alteration in the uh, London rock and roll universe. Yeah. Which to me is, it's almost redundant. The rock and roll universe is, to me, London. And uh, so happy to have been there and taken those shots. Sound check at the roundhouse, playing at yeah. the roundhouse, ding wall, sitting outside on the canals with a stray dog. It was, it was great, and it was the hottest. I remember this. It was the hottest. I mean, I remember because I knew how hot it had been. But we had been told this is the hottest London had ever been. Wow! And we were from New York, so, eighteen degrees or something. So spoiled, whatever that means. Yes, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> Uh, businessmen in undershirts walking down Piccadilly. This is like, um, we had an air-conditioned hotel. I think the only was the Holiday Inn in Camden. And we were, that's how everybody came to stay there. So it was great party time. But I do remember that. And we were here for three days in 1976. And this, this past year was the 40th anniversary of that event. Yeah, that year. Which they said, oh, things changed after you left. And then people would say, well, what was it like when you got 
to London. What was the? I don't know. <laughs> I, I just, yeah. We got here. <laughs> I don't. I wasn't tracking it. Oh, and then what happened after you left? Well, I don't know. <laughs> but because, <now> <laughs> because we left. <laughs> and but I hear that, and I'm uh, so pleased to hear that, because so many people turned up for those events at, at the Roundhouse and at Dingwalls. Promoters, club owners, people who put on shows became uh, less uh, nervous about mm. hiring these, always say the word punk, I put quotes around it, so bear that in mind, these these new newfangled bands mm. like The Clash and, and the Buzzcocks and these wonderful, wonderful bands then. And so they began to get work, which every band should have, that's what it's all about because the Ramones drew thousands of people because of teenage word of mouth because the first album had been noticed by musicians earlier that year April 76 and it all came together um, and it was good fortune for all so Um, thank you London (laughs) forever was the vibe different do you remember in London like do you think that the teenagers in London were different from the teenagers in New York or were they all kind of on the same wavelength oh god no this is they they played to more people in one night in London than they had cumulatively in their entire career before then so New York meant CBGB's Mm -hmm. and Max is Kansas City occasionally but mainly CBGB's and first major gig out of town was really London, which is extraordinary because we we had a hard time getting a booking in Philadelphia, which is 90 miles away, and in Boston, which is, do I have to speak in kilometers? Wait, I have to do this. It's 90 miles, six times nine, that's 50, 54 kilometers away. Do you, um, I don't know if that's correct. I'm all not, right, well, I do. Oh, this is which multiplied by six. Um, but... London was by far uh, the, the largest audience they'd ever played to. So there, there's no, nothing to compare it to at that point. And it was something. Of course, you come back and you're spoiled. We just played to 3,000 people, and now we go to New Haven, Connecticut, and play for 111 people. But they're fans, and that's... It's, we don't quantify the love of fans ever. Mm-hmm. They're just each and every one. And you see their faces in that book, just looking at them. I know that's the wonderful thing. And they're wearing T-shirts that they've made themselves and they've got badges and everything. I think the Ramones is probably the band that I would most like to see ever and I'll never get to. And so, you know, I'm pretty jealous of you having to probably watch them like a million times. Well, you me too. And I did. And... They were wonderful. It's the closest, you know, the album It's Alive that was recorded here at the Rainbow, mm-hmm. uh, New Year's Eve. This is a year and a half after the first um, concerts here. New Year's Eve, 77 to 78, um, was a very, very great show. Very wow. great. And it's, all, it's alive, and that's kind of how they sound. Turn it up really loud. That's the key. Of course, need, need, <laughs> need I say? You can't listen to the Ramones really quietly. It doesn't really work, does it? Anyway, um, I realized I didn't really like introduce you properly, and I know oh. that you're not going to like this bit. Okay, I, I. But I kind of. 
I'm going to cringe here, so I'm going to just well, go ahead. No, no, I, <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> it's just because when you said earlier, when we were talking about your photography, and you said that you you didn't do anything, you just the only reason you were doing the photographs is because you were a manager and you were just kind of sitting around and you weren't a musician or a performer or a, like a DJ or anything like that. But you were, you were like the kind of glue that held everything together and made so many things happen. And you probably, did you know that at the time that you were being this useful to the entire world of no one ever pop no, culture? Well, well, no one ever, at the time, at the time, any time that you might, one might be referring to, nobody ever knows what the significance of that time is going to be. You would have to be supernaturally endowed with predictive abilities to do that. <laughs> no, in a word, no, you don't know. No. Just do your best, and it's about what you love and telling other people what you love and hoping that it, it becomes contagious in a nice way. So it's like knowing, recognizing how much of an enthusiast you are and then just kind of making sure your voice is as loud as physically possible. <laughs> I know, and I don't seem enthusiastic, do I? I seem like oh, <laughs> <laughs> cynical and oh, that again, oh, here we go. But yeah, when I do, when I do become enamored, or I think I've I hear I've heard something I haven't heard before and have wanted to hear because you can't know what it's going to be. That's what's so like you can't predict mm. a painting or a song or a poem. You can't. That's what makes it good. That's what makes me merely me and makes whoever did it them. Yeah, it's like so, a kind of constant treasure hunt for like the next thing. Yes, and here's to them, and may they keep producing treasures. <laughs> I'm in search, always in search of treasures. You've got quite a big archive at home, haven't you, of all your treasures? Yeah, all my treasures are divided between home now and the libraries of Yale University, which wanted them for some reason. So it's been there for three or 400 years, and... They're bomb-proof now, which I think is important. And I, I said that's facetiously. And, but yes, there's a lot of stuff. I was lucky enough to have a lot of closet space in my flat. Yeah, <laughs> you must have done that. <laughs> and so I haven't thrown things away. And, now, and then they become important. But who knew? But all the time, I suppose, in like the late 60s and early 70s, you must have been moving around all the time and collecting as you went. How did you I wasn't keep... collecting. You just you stuff things in the between pages or, you know. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't let you finish the question. No, was... no. I was just wondering how you, I mean, like, for instance, you said you took like a thousand photos of the Ramones. Like, wh where did all those rolls of film, like, where do you keep all that stuff? Like, when you were probably running around oh, yeah, after the well, band? Oh, you keep them in your, you know. For example, when I was, I always liked to have two jobs at a time, so when I was managing the Ramones, my day job was as editor of 16 Magazine, mm -hmm. which is a, a fan magazine for... I would say girls between 11 and 15. You know, if you're 16 and you read 16, you have a problem. <laughs> so said, said the woman, Gloria Stavers, who invented the magazine. And, and um, 
So I take all these pictures, and then I also take pictures of the Bay City Rollers at the same time because we were covering the Bay City Rollers extensively. And they'd become friends, and I would tour with them, take pictures of them, and go back and tour with the Ramones, take pictures of them, and put all the film in one big bag mm. once a week. And we go to a excellent laboratory, and it would all come back. And so that's... There's always a way to put it on someone else's bill. Was it really fun um, working for Sixteen Magazine back oh, then? Oh, it was great. I bet it was. <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> it was great. And and the uh, David Cassidy was just, was the uh, end of the era of David Cassidy. He had been the supreme teen idol, I thought. And in many ways, he was perfect. And then there was a void. Uh, there were the Osmonds, but uh, talk about <laughs> voids. I and mean, there's a void by definition. This is like seven, eight, nine voidy ones. The Jackson Five were uh, interesting and wonderful because it was the first time that um, people not of the white race were put in teen magazines for little girls. Yeah, right. To to like, but they were wonderful. And Michael was I think his voice hadn't even changed then. And uh that was something and he was something and they were some family. Enough of that. That's you well, read read this and let me find out who I am. <laughs> Still according according, <laughs> according to whom? Well, I just uh, shamelessly ripped um, some information off an article in The Guardian that came out after um, your the film about you came out. I, the, the Guardian, I love The Guardian writers have all been great. And, and if, if it's Bob Mike or, or who's the spy? I can't remember. Okay, but it's all right. <laughs> but however it's, it's, more for, it's more for a quote um, from Gillian McCain. Who oh, you know. okay. Gillian is... Um, probably my best friend, and she's the co-author of, of the book. Please Kill Me, yeah. which is 20th anniversary now, the oral history of punk, and the book is dedicated to me. So yeah. that's, well, wow, what an honor, because wow, what a great book that is. It says, um, so in the Guardian article about the documentary, um, Gillian McCain says, if it weren't for Danny, the world might not have ever heard the Stooges and the Ramones, and we definitely wouldn't have heard of Nico as a solo artist. And then... Uh, the article goes on to say, as well as hanging out with Warhol, Fields helped launch the doors into superstardom, palled around with Nico, Edie Sedgwick and Alice Cooper, was the first person to play the Ramones to Lou Reed, was friends with Linda McCartney despite helping end the Beatles touring career, which we'll probably talk about later. <laughs> That's an odd story. <laughs> <laughs> Introduced Iggy Pop to David Bowie and was immortalised in the Ramones tune, Danny Says. And then... Uh, I'm going to end that bit by saying the Iggy Pop quote, Danny is a connector, like a fuel injector in a car. He brings all the elements together for an extreme explosion. I mean, like, there's that's not even like telling everything. There's so many more stories I've come across about you, like these funny ones about you getting in trouble for doing naughty things and like just these little like throwaway things that you did, things that you wrote about. Like it says here, like... um you got the Stooges and MC5 a record deal. You introduced Iggy to David Bauer. You managed Lou Reed for two weeks. You discovered Inside Nico. Mentioned that already. And then you became manager of the Ramones after seeing them at CBGBs. And then you were editor-in-chief of 16, which we talked about. And then there's the whole John Lennon thing. And then you were also, during all this time, you were interviewer of thousands of stars, columnist, photographer, rock and roll, 
tour guide, movie critic, porn director, and many things between. And after all the research I've done about you, I've never found one bad word said about you. So throughout this whole thing, you've also been like a lovely, fun Alas, person. Alas, there aren't too many bad things to say. I wish there were. I mean, I wish I'd been one of those people who, people, peoples, people who had been controversial, but I'm not. The artists had been controversial. That was quite enough. Yeah. Uh, those were slings and arrows that came the way of the Velvet Underground, for example, and yeah. the Iggy, for example, and the Ramones, for example, and Nico, for example, and not not directed at me personally, though, though they should have been, and, mm. and I'd have welcomed it, and I'd take... Uh, I, I want to be Saint Sebastian. Um, for my for the artists I love, I want to be punctured with arrows, and not die because you know he didn't die there. And uh, but you know what I'm referring to. And yeah, I've had it easy, <laughs> and I just wanted to make a little mischief. That's all I ever wanted to do. It sounds like you did. <laughs> I just think if I could swap lives with anyone on the whole planet, it would probably be you. How old are you? I'm almost 80. No, you're not. I am. You don't look almost 80. Well, I am. Trust me. <laughs> <laughs> when you think back to like all that stuff that I just said, especially like the 60 stuff, does it feel a long time ago or does it feel like it was quite recently? Oh, mm -hmm. I, oh, it's hard to know what a terrible answer that is. Um, someone warned me about saying things, answering like that, and that you should just make something up. Uh, it, it, yes. In retrospect, there's been nothing like those years. But you know what? When you're young, there's nothing like those years ever. So how can you say it wasn't? Those are the best years. Those are the most um, not potent. What can I say? The most discovering. The most uh, ad adventurous. The most like, what's here? What if I open this door? What's behind this? What's under that? Um. So those were the '60s for me. Those were the years that, uh, and the world was coming to life, <clears throat> and the world of music and 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 rock and roll was being as we know it really was being invented as i began my first job my first work in rock and roll which is editing a teenage fan a teen a fan magazine for teenagers called date book and one of the first things i did there there we go was to reprint an interview with John Lennon that had run in the, I think the London Evening Standard mm -hmm. earlier that year in which he said the Beatles are more popular than Jesus. <laughs> and I thought, whoa, <coughs> here's a good, here's a good thought. This is funny and this is true and this is whatever. It's a web. It's a good way. Um, it's a good magazine headline, is it not? And John Lennon said it, so he meant it. And when it was published in America, it, it um, set the sky on fire, as has been said about it. In England, it seems to have sunk without a trace. People didn't make a fuss about no. John Lennon blasphemer. 
No, they didn't. <laughs> no. Um, I think there was a bit of a fuss. They were they were on they were on panel shows on on TV, and they yeah. were sort of questioned by these like men in suits about what what the hell do they mean by saying that? But in America, it really kicked off. People were like burning. Oh, they were burning. It was it was like it was. What can I think of uh, the Nazis uh, charged in Germany in 1933? They burned books in the Babel plots yeah. in Berlin and. This was happening all over what, uh, throughout what we refer to patronizingly as the Bible Belt yeah. in America, which is the South and the Deep South. And um, DJs were calling their listeners to come to the Village Square tonight, bring all your Beatles records and pinups and everything, and we're going to start a big bonfire. Were you just sort of and, watching this on TV like, uh-oh? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, I didn't want this. The Beatles certainly didn't want this. No, they really didn't like that. Did and they? this erupted on, as they were doing a gigantic tour of stadiums in America mm. in, in September of 1966. And there were death threats. And um, this, I think they said this is not why we started doing what we're doing. And then they never performed again. Some... You know, a, a bit of a thing on a roof um, near Piccadilly, right? But not really. They never performed for a paying live audience again after that no. tour was over. Th- this wasn't what did it, but I think it may have been a last well, straw. Yeah. You know, they when you said you he- wanted to cause mischief, did you think you were going to make the Beatles stop touring? <laughs> yeah, and okay, I'll. Uh, <laughs> they, Daddy! They were becoming a public nuisance. <laughs> What's the phrase now? They used up. I thought I thought too much of the oxygen available, and and, and there were other wonderful things. I yeah. myself was a fan of the Rolling Stones. Mm. When you had to choose, you know, it was a division, as you'd say, in parliamentary <laughs> terms. And <laughs> I was on the side of the Rolling Stones. When I had a radio show, I announced that I was not going to play any Beatles. You spin the dial. You, I mean, can you imagine doing that? You wouldn't do that now. That's just that's a bad, <laughs> unprofessional thing to do. I said, you're not going to hear the Beatles here. And then I would just kick in with let's spend the night together. Much better. Much better. Better, better song. <laughs> Have you come around to the Beatles now? Are you still Rolling Stones? No. Well, the Beatles did wonderful things, and they changed the world. But as for what music I would take with me to another planet... It would be probably way more Stones than Beatles, with amazing exceptions, mainly from Rubber Soul or from yeah. uh, um, um, Here Comes the Sun, things like that. That were wonderful. Yeah. The early stuff sounds a little nerdy to me. <laughs> nerdy. Yeah, you're right. It's a little bit. <laughs> it's a little quaint. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, it's okay. It's nice. They're nice. They're certainly great songs, and I love them. So... <laughs> Do you still take photographs now? Yeah, I take photographs, but it's not the same because it's not, <clears throat> excuse me, I, I, it's not on film. It's digital, of course, and I even stopped using my little point and shoot and use the phone now. Oh, yeah. And, and, and I'm, I'm deprived of my... 85 millimeter sneak up on them lens because I like ambush photography now. Yeah. And 
I took pictures in, in my Uber car all the way here just out the window because London is so amazing and the people waiting to cross the road are amazing. So that's what I do now. But things you have to, if the, the technology changes so much from under you and you're not a professional photographer, for example, I wish I was still doing 35 millimeter and looking at rolls of film then again. It's all in my pocket, and I can also use it to make phone calls and text. And so... If it's more about the act of doing something, it doesn't really matter how you do it, does it? If it's just you constantly wanting to document, then who cares if it's on a Yeah, but it wasn't just documenting. If you have more control over... I talk about this in the book. You know, you have control over the lens, the lighting, you place people... um, what kind of overhead sky looks good? Mm-hmm. Uh, not available now, unless I were a photographer and carried you know forty pounds of equipment around with me. But hey, it's in my pocket now. <laughs> yeah. So I just take those. So the answer is kind of no, but every once in a while I get a picture that I go, oh, this is a good picture. Yeah. It's kind of an accident. Yeah. But I guess it's always. Kind of an accident, isn't it? Because you have a cast out, cast unless it's a landscape, uh, and even then you have a sky that changes. But with people whew, and shooting a group, wow! Yeah, it's different. I went to go and see a talk by Martin Parr once, and I've brought this up before in in articles and maybe even on this show. I don't know, but Martin Parr, the photographer, said that there's no point in taking photos of like landscapes and trees and sunsets and churches and stuff because they never change. And what you should be taking photos of is stuff that changes, like people and bands and cars and like people's clothes and, and street scenes because that stuff's needed to be. Well, I, I think that's kind of glib to say, of course they change. The sky changes, the clouds change, the seasons change, yeah. colors change. Uh, there may be an intrusive element, a, a man or a fox or something who will change the lake or the wave or... Yeah. Uh, yes, they change. Let's see, that's your challenge to make it look good. But of course, people are people. This is a privilege to be one of them and a responsibility to record others of them. But there's nothing wrong with taking pictures of a sunset. I think I don't think so either. Nothing at all. <laughs> <laughs> because, my God, what a blessing. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. Uh, okay, so. What uh, a, okay, now you want to add, you want to get specific about all the the villainies and 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 my fabled non-career. Well, there was something I wanted to talk to you about. I think in the intro of the book, you mentioned um, Linda McCartney and Gloria Stavers' photography and how. Well, you said there was something about the photographers that made the subjects want to give them a good shot. So there's something about how you can be a certain, um, you can give off a certain vibe as a photographer that is going to make people want to pose for you and be comfortable around you. Yes, neither neither of the two women you mentioned, Gloria Stavers, who was uh, came to New York to get away from North Carolina, was a, a fashion, a photographer's model, and then was gifted with the editorship of 16 Magazine and just knew... She had read. Fa- she knew what what her readers wanted to see, and she 
she elicited from her subjects the just yes this is me and you this is me and your lens and there's something you do to get them to be comfortable and to want to be especially if they're in show business bear in mind they're exhibitionists to begin with so you must say exhibit yourself you know show here i am this is being captured what is it about you that is capturable is but you don't say that no you have to communicate that that's so gloria did and then Linda Eastman, who was to become Linda McCartney, was Linda Eastman when I first met her, was taking her first photographs of bands. And there was a way she had of, she, her camera said, dance for me. Yeah. Okay, to the people she was photographing. And not dance, not, you know. But dance, yes, dance as in, Show show who you are. Show me the inner the beauty of you that makes the beautiful music that we hear. Yeah, very complex uh, rearranging of the senses and of the receptiveness of the artist and what the artist comes up with. And I saw her first pictures of the Rolling Stones uh, from an event that their management company as well sent out official pictures of, and hers was so much better. There was just no comparison here. They were, they were dancing for her camera. Yeah. They're so great. And she was a great, great photographer and a great friend. And I loved her so much and I loved Gloria so much. And when you start talking about people you loved so much, I just sort of like, I get these, you know, catch in the throat and they live on forever forever and ever yeah and my heart and they're in their work and the work too and um yeah linda's photography is is it's beautiful like, isn't it it's beautiful amazing. i've got this postcard that i bought from a gallery that um i saw one of her pieces there it's i think it's paul mccartney's feet and they're holding a milkshake mm-hmm. he's holding a milkshake with his feet and his, yeah. his toenails are painted different colors yeah. and it's just the sweetest little thing and she just had this way of just kind of capturing these really cute moments and she got everyone to just no one came across badly in her photo she ever she always got everyone's like really like the best part of them and the most positive that's side. the thing many of her pictures are the best pictures of those people yeah her pictures of janice joplin and she didn't spend a great deal of time with her or the best pictures of janice i know of yeah you know unposed just janice being her and i think uh linda's unspoken words would just be you yeah you the you that that people love out there be you or me be yourself or me and they're great, yes. And then she got more confidence, and she was a great photographer. I, I saw ironic that uh, she was criticized for daring to be a musician in in Wings. Oh, that was she crazy. didn't want to be that. She wanted to be there. Um, it's kind of an assignment, you know, be in this band. Uh, 
It was not her thing. No, I heard um, Paul McCartney do this thing on Radio 4 recently, and he was talking about that time and how they were like playing live and Linda was on the keyboards and just not really knowing what she was doing. And the whole band kind of strumming, waiting for her, and she was like shrugging at Paul, like, I don't know how to play the piano. (laughs) And they were live in front of thousands, but it was kind of like part of what made the band special because they were all just kind of modeling along. and Yeah, but it was was a little bit cruel Yeah. also because, you know, someone made a... uh, separated the many uh, microphones and, and the resulting tapes of a rehearsal she did and just played hers and broadcast it on the radio. Really? And so she was sort of singing, yeah, they did this in America. And isolated, I think, it's technical, isolated her the track, the mic that, and of course she didn't sound like... That's a really uh, mean thing to do. So mean because, you know, everyone was mean because they... Her for, they they envied her from the beginning for marrying a beetle and and taking the taking the bachelor beetle out of circulation. Yeah, so right. there was this <laughs> there was this immense dislike for her then, and then she got in the band and mm. oh she can't sell a musician. How dare she be in this band? And well, she didn't want to do that anyhow. She was so gifted and wonderful and 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 beautiful and wonderful. Yeah. So. Okay, enough of that. Um, Are there any photographers who are working nowadays that you really love the work of? Oh. Or do you keep up with that kind of stuff, or do you not really? I don't follow it. It's just, I don't don't follow the signatures. I don't, I'm not interested in turning something over and seeing who did this, except occasionally. And then I go, "Uh uh-huh, but... It's rarely that I carve the names in stone in my mind and memory, but yeah. I see many. I look through the fashion magazines and, and the local um, news agent, that's the word here, and there's so many beautiful photographs. I yeah. go, oh, wow, wow, yes, 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 you see it, you get it, you get it, you're doing it, this is sexy, this is great, this is okay. But not by name, I don't know by name. No. Okay. Are there any? Um, if mag- I had to, I would. If I was no, the that's editor okay. that's of a, kind of a magazine, difficult question, I would know really. what to do. Yeah. But in terms of magazines, are there any that you get regularly that that you like that you think are doing a good job at the moment? Ooh, <laughs> ooh. <laughs> Visually, all of them are so beautiful. There's just a rack of them. I would say, and and when I come to London, it's just every five or six months, and they're all different. They have different titles. And um, I don't know. There was all this great work being done. So, no, what mag? No, uh, magazines are. I don't know. Magazines are for the words, and the words plus the pictures. And I try to think what. No, I can't answer that. I I I, I am not equipped to answer that. Don't worry. I know. I want to see. Uh, what do I want to see? It comes in the mail. I want to see Scientific American because it has great diagrams of how life began or something and things that you couldn't have photographs of. I like that. I like when people do computer-generated theoretical... Oh, I'm getting off. 
the subject here. No, there is nothing. I hate everything. <laughs> <laughs> nothing pleases me. That's why I am who I am. No, I'm kidding. I'm just, I, I, I love the photographs of, of people. I'm, I'm such an old fogey when it comes to this. The photographs of people who took people, pictures of people I love. Yeah. Um, you know, in the Warhol era, you know, where uh, one was young and and loved one's friends. And I look at those pictures and those um, attempts at movies and I thought, and I think, yeah. But now, I don't know. What comes in the mail? I don't know. It's all on the internet now. Nothing. There are no magazines. that just go surfing wildly. You go on the internet then. Do through you, the internet. stuff on there? And stuff. Oh, you know what I love? I love the blog called Spitalfield's Life. Oh, yeah. By a gentleman known as the gentle author. The gentle and, author, yeah. Oh, it's wonderful. Yeah, it's great. It's wonderful. Um, And he's wonderful. And it's just about London and people and places and thousand-year-old graves and and hundred-year-old people or pictures of people from a hundred years ago and it's yeah. it's great and so that's that's a major magazine in my life in that it's periodical and mm. it comes every day or a couple of days and I check it out and I love it and I learn and I'm awed by pictures of the Great Fog of London of 1952 yeah. or three, whatever. That was weird. Oh, weird. <laughs> you know, we that's, it's not like the kind of thing we learned about in school either. It just kind of, one of those things that happened and no one's, I don't know, I don't know anything about it, but I've seen pictures of it and it looks crazy. Like I you know. couldn't even see your hand people, in front of your face and people, people died. People were dying. Yeah, people they were, were breathing in and dying. Yes, I know. Very strange. And it wasn't even that long ago, really. Uh, well, it's like 40s. Maybe? Uh, no, 50s. I think it was in the 50s. I think it was yeah, at the beginning 50s. of the uh, the Queen's reign. And mm. um, Winston Churchill's secretaries ran out to do something important and caught and breathed <laughs> and died from, because of breathing. This is so astonishing. Scary. We're not far from this repetition, not here, but globally, but I won't get into that. I see the headline, and, and, and it's the first time in history that three years in a row have each broken eight records. Yeah. The first time in the history of keeping track of these things, that three in a row keep getting bigger and hotter and worse. And um, it's not just the ice is melting, but crops are failing, and for every too much water in one place, there's too little water in another place. Nobody wants to hear me talk about this, so let's change the subject. I don't know. I think it's quite interesting <laughs> to hear your thoughts on doom, <laughs> impending doom. Everyone's talking about impending doom. It's like yeah. the thing to talk about at the moment. But um, you know, but at my age, I feel I'm getting off this bus pretty soon, and that's just um, uh, I, I apologize to everyone <laughs> who will outlive me. For what has been left. Apology accepted. Yeah. I mean, if I could, you know, I'd go around to every person who sur survives my time on earth and say, I am so sorry for what has been done in the name of what? 
progress, wealth accumulation. Yeah. You know, making life better. That's just oh. okay. Back back to things I know something about. <laughs> I'm, I'm just. Um, my last question in this section is, what is the key to life? What is what? What's the key to life? Key to life. Be awake and alert and uh, thank whatever power you turn to. And if there's none, make one up for the gift of uh, sight and hearing and taste and smell and touch and your heart and your receptivity and being able to access what others have experienced, saw, felt, touched, recorded, wrote, created. Just this oh, life is so short. There's so much. I mean, we really, this is another 100, I could have used another 100 years. I mean, not, not to decay. Um, but just to take every everything leads to something else. Just hurry up and go to the British Museum and look at the Elgin marbles, and and just say, "Ah, oh, isn't this wonderful that this has been done? That we have this here, and that's it. That's it. Look, look for." things that are beautiful that sound beautiful that feel beautiful that and and mainly look for human things that look sound feel smell touch taste beautiful that's all that's my guide okay everybody go out there and do all those things right now and <laughs> was that was the dopiest answer I, that was the sweetest, i'm sorry it's a wonderful best. question and it invited me to such no you nearly from, made me cry i, I wish i had I, <laughs> Wish I were profound enough no, I'm so, to deal with that because it's everything, you know. Re, re, read something wonderful. Read. Don't stop reading. Those are words. This is your language. You treasure, treasure your language. So, uh, I don't know what to say now. I don't know what to say. I'm speechless. God, <laughs> what did I leave out? Flowers are wonderful too. Grow flowers. Don't forget the flowers. <laughs> don't forget to. Don't forget to look at them. And grow them, and I, I hate cut flowers because I don't like them. I like to see flowers coming to life, not flowers that have been executed and displayed for your decorative pleasure, but, no. oh, what the hell, they're going to, I don't know, grow flowers. I think that's a good place to end this section, grow uh, flowers yeah. yes. by Danny Fields. <laughs> <laughs> Top tip. I didn't expect that, huh? but yeah. <laughs> Um, okay, so in the next section, we'll be going through some records, which we failed to do in this section. So, okay. um, thank you for having this chat about everything. Oh, thank anything. you for asking the most wonderful and, 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 and igniting questions. It's it made me think. Thank you, Danny. And it's good to have that chance. See you in chapter two. Yeah. Thank you. Rough Trades Radio. Reflection, available in-store and online at roughtrade.com.
Hello and welcome to part two of um, this time we have with the wonderful Danny Fields. Hi, Danny. Hello. I live. How are how are you? I'm good, thanks. As I say again, do we, must we pretend this is our first? No. Cut, cut that. Okay. Hi, Liv. Hi, Danny. Um, Danny has come into Rough Trade today and he's picked out, I think, five records. No, six records. And we're going to play some tracks and go through them. Um, so, Danny, what have you got for us today? What do you want to start with? Oh, you know, I, I tried to, well, I mean, could have picked... 6,000, but we were limited, and I saw Leonard looking at me. <laughs> and Leonard has just left us, Leonard Cohen, and, and was a wonderful everything. And, okay, in the mid-1960s, when he was noticed in America, and in Canada he was well-known for his poetry, his novels, and... Not yet his songwriting, but um, Judy Collins had recorded uh, Suzanne on her In My Life album, which is very remarkable. And, and uh, Ira, uh, a watershed, they, it is known as, because she says in the liner notes, I'm going here from being a singer of traditional folk songs to the songs of urban folk writers, modern uh, people who are now alive. And, and this is, I mean, it's extremely um, worthy to sing about people, you know, 47 people trapped in a mine was a cliche. We used to, you know, was there was an early folky and it seemed every song was 47 people trapped in a mine. What do we do now? Or, she, she, Judy, was looking for and found um, contemporary songwriters, and she recorded Suzanne by Leonard Cohen, and then Leonard Cohen was uh, offered a record contract, and I worked for Judy's record company, Electra Records. I met Leonard and at the Newport Folk Festival, I think in 1967, um... I was hanging out with them, and... You were there? Oh, yeah. Oh, God. Okay. <laughs> Where and, didn't you go? <laughs> and, uh, well, it was my job, you know. I know, I know. I I'm know, just jealous. I know, and I was, um, oh, well, I was there promoting a bunch of, working for, uh, oh, God, that was something. Anyhow, someone gave me some curious pill, and I think I had visions of otherworldliness, and... I think I fell asleep in the hotel room and woke up to hear Leonard teaching Judy a song he had just written called, Hey, That's No Way to Say Goodbye. And oh, my you God. Can, you know, I was seeing the universe in the, in the shag carpet of the Viking Hotel in Newport, Rhode Island. And when my hearing facilities returned, there was a beautiful song being taught by... The, a beautiful songwriter to a beautiful singer and songwriter. And that's the song I heard. And as you can imagine, emerging from, I think it was called LSD acid, some something like that. Nobody does anymore, but it was significant. 
And, I can't believe it. And, and, and here's the song. And it's, hey, that's no way to say goodbye. And, and then two nights later, Judy debuted the song at, in Central Park in New York, a, a, a concert there. And, and Leonard came up on stage with her. Hey, everyone, let's bring the songwriter up here. And I think that's the first time he ever faced a large audience. Wow. Um, and then, of course, at the end of his life, he had become a remarkable solo international fantastic performers who could hold a two-hour show um totally. so this was the beginning of his emerging from the shyness and the song was sort of a key to that so is this a lead into the song do we play it now yeah i think maybe if you could introduce it for us that would be great okay leonard cohen from the album songs. songs of leonard cohen i'm looking at a legacy album i'm not sure it's there but it is Hey, that's no way to say goodbye. I love you in the morning Our kisses deep and warm Your hair upon the pillow Like a sleepy golden storm Here's many love before us I know that we are not new city and in forests they smiled like me and you but now it's come to distances and both of us must try your eyes are soft with sorrow hey that's no way to say goodbye Looking for another as I wander in my time Walk me to the corner, our steps will always run You know my love goes with you as your love stays with me It's just the way it changes like the shoreline and the sea but let's not talk of love or chains and things we can't untie. Your eyes are soft with sorrow. Hey, that's no way to say goodbye. Kisses deep and warm Your head on the pillow Like a sleepy golden storm Yes, many love before us I know that we are not new In city and in forest They smiled like me and you But let's not talk of love or chains And things we can't untie your eyes are soft with sorrow Hey, that's no way to say goodbye Okay, that was the lovely Leonard Cohen. 
And what have we next? Okay, now here's, okay, let's fast forward to 1970 to a convention uh, that was held in in the state of Vermont in the Green Mountains. Um, It was called the Alternate Media Project or Conference or something, and it it was the uh, anti-war, pro Life, underground, everybody's. Okay, 1970. I had signed the Stooges, Iggy and the Stooges to Electra about a year earlier. They had been in Los Angeles uh, recording their second album, Funhouse. And there were phones then in phone booths. And uh, trust me, you had to get and hold a thing in your hand and dial. <laughs> there was one phone booth on a hilltop in Vermont, and from that phone, and this had been scheduled. I called the studio in Los Angeles where Iggy and the Stooges were recording, and and he said, "Can I said, is it finished?" And he said, "Yes. Would you like to hear it?" And they were. I had brought some friends up with Lenny Lenny Kay. I remembered Craig and Allison <laughs> Carpell, Richard and Lisa Robinson said. Oh, he's going to play me his new record over the phone. (laughs) And yes, and he did. And he played this album, which became Funhouse, the Stooges' second album, over in a phone booth. And I tried to wave the handset around in the air so people could (laughs) hear it. And this this is Mark's The World debut of album came to be known as Funhouse. So if we could hear what, what would be so, uh, tea. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. I, can't, I mean, look at this. this. is so amazing. TVI. What a great song. TVI from Funhouse. The Stooges with Iggy. Yeah.
Great choice. That's a good story, isn't That's it? That's a really this good story. <laughs> Here's the new album. These are the eight <laughs> Stooges fans in the world, I neglected to say. Okay. That's so good. Private audience with yeah. Biggie on top of a hill in Vermont. Yeah, okay. Okay, let's put this one over here. So you've done we've done Leonard, Iggy. Okay. What have you got next? Okay. How many how do we have so few? I thought we had no, more. Well, we've done Leonard and Iggy, and then you've got okay. these three, and then we've also got the one okay. you want to play at the end, remember? Okay. All right, okay. Okay, this and okay, this is this is the first band I was ever a fan groupy uh lunatic about, and this was the Velvet Underground. And around 1965, which became the house band at Andy Warhol's factory where I hung out and did nothing much except <laughs> to sort of sit there. No big deal, and, hanging out at the factory. Yeah, I know. People think it's a big deal. You just sort of sat there. Was it really not a big deal then at the time? You I just sit know, around? I don't know. If everyone else <laughs> I knew did it, then it was no big deal. But then people say, oh, but you were part of the people who could just be there yeah was it fun though <sighs> it was life you know it's what you do every day you go and it was right it was just near where i worked okay you want to know where i worked i worked for a magazine called liquor store monthly wow okay <laughs> that was just down the road from andy warhol's factory and every day at lunch i would just go up to the factory because there were there were people I knew and they were my friends and there was the Velvet Underground rehearsing and Andy making movies or people churning out paintings on the silk screening on the floor and um, then back to Liquor Store Magazine which was all <laughs> about selling ads for some new brand of vodka. So uh, yeah and then in the evening, you'd go back, and, and at a certain time in the evening, when you walked out of the factory, the, there would be a line of limousines uh, on the street. But we didn't, nobody knew why they were there. You just knew we're supposed to get in them. So you would get in, not the first one, because then you had to be Andy or his one or two closest people, but that only happened once or twice. You get in one of the limousines, then it would take you to a party or to a glamorous opening or the New York <laughs> Film Festival or something. We would all be swept in in the entourage. So I, I guess it was fun, but you expected it. Hey, this is my due. Hey, this is owed to me. But in any case, okay, the Velvet Underground were the house band. Yeah. There. They rehearsed there and... um. And they became the music of my life, the music of our lives then. then later on, when I had um, a radio show on WFMU, I, there was a song from the first album, the Banana album, The Velvet Underground, and Nico was the formal title, which I used as the opening and closing because it was such a great opening and closing theme. You will all hear now why if we do... All tomorrow's parties, the Velvet Underground, Nico. Okay.
Thursday's child. 
The Velvet Underground and Nico from the uh, what is known as the Banana Album and All Tomorrow's Parties. This is Danny Fields, and I do believe in back announcing. I like, really like what you just said. Yeah, it's I, good. I, you know, saying stay, stay tuned, you're going to hear. Ugh, it's like giving the end away to play the music, and then people should want to sit there and go, what was that? If we sit here, yeah. we're going to find out what that was. You're right. So every song should be back sold. And, and if you don't, it's you, first person singular, but if one doesn't, it's kind of insulting to the artist who made the record and to the audience who, and to anyone sitting out there who's going, oh, I like this. I wonder what yeah, it is. I hope they tell us what it is rather than say we're going to play blah, 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 and then there's a, a laundry list of coming attractions. So what? It's just words. When you hear the music and you want to know what that was you just heard, that's when it's important. So that's You're totally right. We've been doing this all wrong and we're going to change it as of this day. Always back sell. Always, yeah. always, Because you're right. When you're in the car and you hear an amazing song and you're like, what is that? And you get a pen out and you're holding the pen in your mouth because you're trying to write it as you're driving and they don't announce it and you're like, oh, I know. Why? I mean, yes, I know. That? I've heard this. I, I heard an, okay, that's a whole other story, but an amazing song driving through San Francisco once, and it was so amazing. I pulled off the highway. It was not just through the city, but interstate, just to hope that they would say what it was, and they didn't. And shit. And I was so into what's going on, and what was that? What was that? I called the radio station and made them go to their logs and find out what was playing at the hour that I had noted. And they told me, and I said, is this a record? I mean, I never heard of this. It was Oh Happy Day by the Edward Hawkins. Can you imagine hearing that for the first time in your life? I think that would be like, yeah. That's a revelation. Earth-shaking. If you were just driving and you heard that, that's one of the most uplifting songs of all time. Absolutely. And I wonder, well, what is this? This is so amazing. And, and, yeah, the much follows after that, but still, this is if they had only said that. And okay, I mean, they didn't. And for those who weren't in the music business, like I was, who could call the station and say, Harumph, this is me from this record <laughs> company, and I want you to know what that song was. Yeah. You know, give me your, you know, 
music director or something, and so found out what it was. Uh, and then, of course, it became uh, huge and iconic and wonderful. And, and uh, But the first time you hear something like that, you want, why don't you just say it right away? That was the Edward Hawkins singer. So no happy day. Oh, gosh. Okay, I'll make a note of that, and then I'll find out where more later. Maybe but we not should play. Knowing? It. No, that's crazy not to know. I feel like in the show we should probably play that now. Uh, we could play that now. Yes, would you? Yeah, we'll play it. Okay. No, I'm not going to say what it is. I'm going to do that afterwards. Okay. All right.
That was Oh Happy Day by the Edward Hawkins Singers. Edward Hawkins Singers. Very it, good. Yes. And that's to um, make everyone think of Danny driving down a San Francisco highway, infuriated that the radio DJ hasn't said whatever <laughs> the hell that song was yes. and going out of his mind. Yes. Um, so now, something, now for something completely different. <laughs> what have you got there? Okay, this, I, uh, this is Paul Kalkbrenner. The album is, I think his current album, Seven. He's... Uh, this is EDM, electronic dance music, and I love dancing to it, and I love him, and he's, he's godlike in, in Germany. Uh, am I allowed to say YouTube here? Because if you go YouTube, yeah. for example, um, the, uh, anything of his, but this is very wonderful, and... Uh, I never know what this is. I don't know if they're sampling something else. I don't know if they've written this. I don't know who's singing it. I just know that this is EDM, and and the genius here may be Paul Kalkbrenner. I think he is a genius because here's the song called Cloud Rider. It may be someone else is singing, and he remixed it. I know he remixed White Rabbit and mm. and and. Uh, and retitled it as a feature head, which is quite wonderful. And it was the first time anyone had ever sampled the early early Jefferson Airplane, which is remarkable. And there it is, feature head. Wow. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, let's play the play that. Okay. Okay. This is great. Hey, hey, dance, everybody, dance to this. This is what it's about. Dance.
Okay, that was Featurehead by... Can you say his name? Because I just have trouble with his name. Okay, Paul Kalkbrenner. Paul Kalkbrenner. Uh, And it is uh, a sampling, however it is done, of Jefferson Airplane's White Rabbit from the Surrealist Pillow album with Grace Slick singing. So there you go. And uh, it's chopped and cut, but it's wonderful. And he's the future. Okay. Well... Now you're coming up to your last one, and I know you wanted to pick the next one because of maybe what's going on in the world at the moment. I don't want to talk about politics too much, but I know that you live in New York, and I know the last few months must have been pretty crazy for you, like it has been for everyone else. And I don't we're on know. Earth. <laughs> well, yeah, everyone on Earth. <laughs> on um, Earth. This is, okay. I went back. I went back to do an hour to guest on the radio station I had been on in nineteen sixty-eight, sixty-nine. And um, it's one of the songs I loved to play is this, which is Joan Baez singing Bob Dylan's It's a Hard Rain, It's Gonna Fall. And I thought then, um, this is three days before it was announced that he was he had been awarded the Nobel Prize. So I felt, oh, wow, and I just played him on the radio. But this song says so much. And so, oh, it's not asking. And, and, and Joan knocks this out of the, whatever you call it, the cricket match or the ballpark or whatever. Knocks it out of the cricket match. Yeah, I think whatever, that's the, um, whatever the word is. That's the age old The phrase. stadium. <laughs> Joan just yeah. kills this song. I think Joan and Bob Dylan, Joan Baez and Bob Dylan were lovers at the time mm. she recorded this. I like to think so. It's from... Her album, Farewell, Angelina, with the wonderful uh, Richard Avedon portrait of her on the cover. Yeah. It's all Bob Dylan's song. Mm. And this is Hard Rain, and this is oh, more so than, than it ever was. So just listen to Joe, to Bob.
That was Joan Baez covering Bob Dylan's A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall, which is a very appropriate song for probably how we're all feeling at the moment, but um, maybe a kind of good, uplifting thing for us to end on as well, I guess. uh, The point is, and I don't mean to add to uh, Bob Dylan's sublime poetic vision, but it's A Hard Rain, and and, uh, the last verses of the song are his manifesto what are you going to do about it Mm. and he's going to sing about it and tell all the world about it and stand on the mountain so all men can hear it and and women of course and that's it what can you do it's just think it feel it sing put it forth what's on your mind about what's going on because it's hard as the rain is, we're gonna we're gonna come out of it. We're gonna come out the other end, and this is, uh, and then you can play uh, that nice Beatles song about the sun. Here comes the sun. Yes, it's a nice. I don't want to play that now because I don't. I, I would not impact the uh, density and the heaviness and the brilliance and the forebodingness of. Hard rain, but yeah. let's let's pretend that here comes the sun, <laughs> follows the hard rain. Okay, well, let's hope it, that yeah. that happens in real life. It's a good decision. Um, maybe we should say goodbye. Okay, uh, goodbye to you. Oh, 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 Thank you so much. This has been great. I was so uh, nervous about doing this because I don't know much about music, and it's been a long time. <laughs> Since I've listened, I like the Beethoven quartets these days. That's about all I listen to. But this is great, and people were wonderful, and they made wonderful music, and it's all there, and we are so lucky to have it uh, available at our fingertips, as here, as at Rough Trade, and it's just, what a treasure. Treasure, this is what the treasures I was talking about. Here we are. Yeah, it's and all there. It just needs uh, needs digging out. Yeah, or just look around. You don't have to dig so much. Just open your eyes, your nose, your mouth, your ears. Here you go. Good night, everybody. Thank you, Danny. It's been such a pleasure. You're the best. Thank you, Liz. <laughs> Bye. Bye.
Rough Trade Radio. Radio.